All right. Well, good morning, church. Hey, listen, if you're new here, my name is Will, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at the church. And I want to begin today by saying hello to our entire High Point family. I specifically want to say hello to our East Memphis campus. So good to see all of you and so good to be with you here today. I also want to say hello to our Carville campus and also all of our church at home campuses. Uh, we have so many people who are tuning in. Uh, High Point Church has continued to grow during this season. And we have people from uh, the West Coast and the East Coast and the Northeast and the Mid-South and the Midwest. And so shout out to everybody who is tuning in. Uh, we love you guys and we're so grateful to have you here this morning. Now, today we are in the second week of our 12-week series through the book of Colossians. And if you remember, uh, we said last week that the book of Colossians is written uh, by the Apostle Paul. And he's in prison when he writes it. And he is writing this letter to a group of Christians in the city of Colossae. And what's really interesting is that it's one of the few churches that he never got a chance to meet. So he's writing to a group of Christians, and the only reason why they exist is because one of his disciples, Epaphras, took the gospel, went back to his home city of Colossae, made disciples. He led people to the Lord and then grew them up in the Lord by discipling them. And so Paul is writing this letter to the Colossian church uh, for two reasons. Uh, the first reason why Paul is writing this letter is in order to encourage the believers. That's his primary reason, to encourage the believers. But his secondary reason wasn't just to encourage the believers. It was to expose the false teachers. There were false teachers that had crept into the church in Colossae. So he writes to encourage the believers and to expose the false teachers. Next week, we'll talk a little bit more around that, the false teaching that he was exposing. Uh, but today, I want to focus on the encouragement of believers, which was his primary reason for writing this letter. So now that we have a little bit of, a, of an overview, a reminder, a recap of what this letter is about, our passage uh, today comes to us from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at this passage under two headings, two headings. We're going to begin this morning by looking at a godly prayer, and then we are going to conclude by looking at a gospel power a godly prayer, and a gospel power. But we're going to begin by looking at a godly prayer. What the Apostle Paul does here is he is praying for the Colossians. Last week, we saw that he was praising them for their love and for their faith and for their discipleship. But in this passage, he goes from praising them to praying for them, and he prays a very godly prayer. It's a two-part prayer that Paul prays for this church in Colossae, for these Christian Colossians. And what I would argue, one of the reasons why I'm so excited about this morning is because I feel that this is a prayer that we should be praying for ourselves as individuals, that we should be praying for our spouses, that we should be praying for our kids, that we should be praying for our grandkids. The more I've dug into this passage, the more I realize how desperately I need to be praying this over myself and over those who I love. And so Paul here has a very godly prayer, and there are two things that he's praying for in particular. Uh, the first thing that he's praying for is he's praying for their vertical wisdom, their vertical wisdom. And then the second thing that he's praying for is he is praying for their horizontal walk. So their vertical wisdom and their horizontal walk. So let's begin today by looking at the first thing that he's praying for, which is vertical wisdom. And in order to do that, I want to read verse 9 for you of the text. Here's what Paul says. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking 
that you may be filled, everyone say filled, with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. Everybody say wisdom and understanding. So, so the first thing that we see the Apostle Paul praying for them, which in turn we should be praying for ourselves, is he is praying for them to be filled with all wisdom. Now, there's three words here that I want to unpack for you in the Greek. There are three words that I think are very important for us to understand if we're going to get a better understanding of what Paul is actually praying for. And the first word that I want to highlight for you there is the word knowledge. He brings up knowledge of God's will. The, the word there, knowledge, in the Greek, it, it doesn't just mean a superficial knowledge, but it means a deeper and more thorough understanding of something. A, a, more, a deeper and a more thorough comprehension of something. That's what the word there, knowledge, means. And then he also prays for wisdom, which is the bigger word that we're looking at. And the word wisdom, ironically enough, here's what it means. It means to be able, it's the skill and or the ability to take two or more things and connect them in your head. So things that maybe in someone else's, from someone else's perspective, have nothing else to do with, have nothing to do with each other. The wise person can see how everything in their life interconnects. The, the word picture in the Greek actually is the word union or a confluence. A confluence is the point where two rivers meet. That's what wisdom means in scripture, is the ability to see that all of your life is connected. Your, your, your marriage is connected to your parenting, and your parenting is connected to your career, or your singleness is connected to your community, and your community is connected to your spiritual walk. All of life is interconnected, and a wise person is someone who can see those connections. As a matter of fact, just to prove that that's the definition of wisdom, according to scripture, the definition of a fool is someone who doesn't see that life is connected. A fool says, I can be however, I could be, I could work 80 hours at work and that has nothing to do with my family. And I could spend crazy and that has nothing to do with my health. And I could not sleep and that's got nothing to do with my devotional life. The, the fool, by definition in scripture, is someone who doesn't see that all of life is connected. That's what wisdom means. It's a skill that grows over time. It's an insight that develops over time. We even see Jesus having to grow in wisdom. It says in Luke chapter 2 that one of the things that Jesus grew up in, one of the things was stature, but the other thing was in wisdom. Same Greek word. Jesus himself grew in wisdom as he lived those 33 years on earth. That's what wisdom means. And then the word understanding, we saw what the word knowledge means. We saw what the word wisdom means. The word understanding, it's similar to the word wisdom in that if the word wisdom means to bring things together, the word understanding means to keep them together. You don't just do it once, but you keep them together. And the other thing that understanding means, it means to put things in their proper order. So someone who is wise is someone who has a list of things and those things are in the right priority. So the thing that's number one is the thing that should be number one. And the thing that's number two is the thing that should be number two. So to be wise uh, is to have things in their proper order. So those are the three words that I think are vital for us to understand if we're really going to understand what the Apostle Paul is actually praying for here. So if you're taking notes, here's what I want you to write, okay? When you look at Scripture, and this isn't from me, this is from commentators and people way smarter than me. When you look at Scripture, here's the most basic, most foundational definition of wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to discern God's will in a particular area or season of your life. Let me say that again. Wisdom, and if you're not writing it down, you should be writing this down, okay? Type it in your phone if not. Wisdom is the ability to discern God's will in a particular area or season of your life. 
That's the most basic foundational way. So if you're thinking, what's the wisest thing to do in this area or this season? Ask yourself, what's God's will for me in this season? And that will be the wisest thing for you to do. Okay. Now, what I found interesting, though, is that my devotional for 2021 is a, a devotional by Dr. Tim Keller through the book of Proverbs. And over the first several days of January, he defines uh, the different Hebrew words that are used in Scripture to describe wisdom. And what I discovered is that wisdom is actually way more comprehension, comprehensive and has way more layers than I initially thought. So let me give you some of the Hebrew words that the Old Testament uses to describe Wisdom, And as I work through them, what you're going to see is that wisdom has way more layers than many of us thought. And what you're also going to see is that you might be good in one aspect of wisdom and really bad in another aspect of wisdom. So let me work through these words. One Hebrew word for wisdom is the Hebrew word laka. Laka means to be learned or to be knowledgeable. But again, like I said earlier, it's not just a superficial knowledge. Right? It's not like, hey, I read the headline on the article. No, no, you actually read the article and have thought through its implications. It's not just surface knowledge. It's deeper knowledge. Here's what it is. If laka is one of the things that wisdom means, then what it means is you can have knowledge without wisdom, but you can't have wisdom without knowledge. You get what I'm saying? So there are people who are very knowledgeable, but then are, when you actually spend time with them, they're kind of dumb and they're foolish and they're idiots. And you're like, you know a lot about the Bible, but you don't do anything with it. Right? So, so, so what you see is that you can have knowledge without wisdom, but you can't have wisdom without knowledge. You need a baseline knowledge in order to be a wise person. You just do. Okay? So one of the definitions, one of the Hebrew words is lakah. Another word for wisdom in the Old Testament is hokmah. And here's what hokmah means. Hokmah means Training with strong accountability. Training with strong accountability. So the moment I use the word accountability, it means that true wisdom requires other people. You can't be wise by yourself. It requires community. It requires people doing life with you. So hokma means that wisdom comes from learning from others, spending time with others. See, so here's what I mean. To, to be truly wise you can't just learn from your mistakes. You also have to learn from others' mistakes because no one lives long enough to make all the mistakes themselves. So if I don't go out of my way to learn from your mistakes and you might be ahead of me in marriage or you might be ahead of me in career, you might be ahead of me in parenting, you might be called to singleness and I just figured out I'm called to singleness, you might be ahead of me in singleness, I need to learn from you because I'm not going to be able to live a life long enough to learn all those lessons myself. I need other people in order to grow in Wisdom. So that means learning from others. It means learning from our own mistakes. We'll talk about that in a second. And it means to learn from God-ordained suffering. I can't tell you how many times I'll be processing a decision. And not a black or white decision, but a great, something that there's really no right or wrong answer. I can go either way. And, and many times it's not necessarily prayer, even though I pray about it. It's not necessarily God's word, even though I read God's word. Sometimes it's a conversation with a friend. I'm in a small group and someone says something and I'm like, that's it. Right? So, so you can't grow in wisdom without other people. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. That's the word hokmah. Another Hebrew word for uh, wisdom, this is my favorite one, is the word benah. Benah is the ability, to get this, and man, do we need this type of wisdom. 
Bana is the ability to notice distinctions and shades when other people only see a blur. It's to see that, that there's that many times, it's not just one or two options, there's six options. The, the truly wise person sees distinctions. They see shades when other people only see black and white. That's what wisdom is. Let me, let me give you an example. We all are wise in certain areas. So, so for example, I'm a big Arsenal fan. I'm a big EPL fan. My wife, there's times where my wife will sit next to me and watch English Premier League soccer or football, which is what they call it in England, and, and, and will sit there and not get anything from what's happening, right? She doesn't know that they're in a defensive formation. She has no idea that they're playing a 4-2-3-1. She has no idea that one of the defensive midfielders is sitting back while the other one's attacking. She doesn't see that. She doesn't see that they're attacking the right flank instead of the left flank. I see all of that. Why? Because when it comes to English Premier League football, I am wise in that area. So since I've spent more time, I have more knowledge, I have more experience, I can see distinctions, I can see shades that she can't because I'm more wise in that area. But then if I was in the kitchen with my wife and we're putting ingredients and stuff, I'm like, hey, let's put all the salt in there. You know, let's put the pepper. I don't. She can taste something and know that doesn't have enough sugar or that doesn't have enough pepper or whatever it is and, or that enough seasoning. Like we, can, we go to a restaurant Actually, we went to a restaurant on Friday. I won't say where it was, but we didn't really like it that much. But we went to a restaurant on Friday and, 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 and we were driving back and she's like, oh, the steak didn't have enough blank. And I'm like, oh, it's fine to me. I don't know what you're talking about. Right, but it's because in that area, she's wiser than me. She's more knowledgeable than me. She sees distinctions and shades that I don't see. So in order to be a wise person, take that and apply it to all of life. Not just cooking or, or English Premier League football, but you get to a place where you become wise enough where you see the distinctions and the shades and the layers to every aspect of life. In situations with people, that's what it means to grow in biblical, in biblical wisdom. So I've noticed that a lot of times wise people end up having a lot more grace for people because when they look at people, they don't just see good people and bad people. They don't just see left and right. They don't just see black and white. Like they, 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 there are shades, there are degrees. There's, there's not just good and bad. There's good, there's best, there's better. They see those distinctions that other people just don't see. And what I find interesting when I look at this passage is that in the passage, Paul brings up both the concept of, of endurance and the concept of patience. And here's what's interesting. The word there, endurance, literally means in the Greek, to persevere under difficult circumstances. That's what endurance means. So, so being a wise person is someone who can navigate circumstances. But then the very next word, which is patience, the word patience has to do with difficult people, right? If I think about 2020, more of my problems were with difficult people than it was with difficult problems. And a truly wise person can navigate both problems and people. That's what it means to grow in wisdom. And what I love about Benah and why it's so important, I'm telling you, if you're a parent and you're not praying this for your kids, if you're a spouse and you're not praying this for your husband or your wife, if you guys ever pray for me, I would love for you to pray for wisdom, especially after this. Like it, it, as we pray, here's why this is so important. Because a lot of people tend to be either, they only see black and white, which is legalism, or they only see gray, which is relativism. True wisdom keeps you from legalism and relativism. You don't only see black and white on the one hand, and you don't only see gray on the other. You realize that there are spectrums to every area and every decision. And in the last group of Hebrew words, these are three words that all kind of mean the same thing, are Haskell, 
Orma, and Mizima. And they are a set of Hebrew words that mean to plan and live strategically. So part of what wisdom is, is to plan and to think strategically. It's not just wisdom in the present, but it's wisdom for the future. True wisdom has just as much to do with foresight as it has to do with insight. And to be truly wise, I have insight in the present, but I have foresight for the future. And what I love is that when you are truly approaching the future with wisdom, true wisdom keeps you from being overconfident on the one hand and overcautious on the other. Some of us, right, and some, a lot of times you're married to that person. Like some people, they think about the future and they're overcautious. And then some people think about the future and they're way too confident. True wisdom not only gives you insight but foresight, but when you look into the future, you're not overconfident or overcautious. There's a balance that only the gospel can give you. Does that make sense? That's why we should be praying for wisdom because wisdom, and this is a lot of stuff I just learned this week, is way more comprehensive than any of us thought. And we need it way more desperately than we ever, ever thought we needed it. Okay? Now, the question is this. If, if, if God's, if, if wisdom at the most basic level is the ability to discern God's will, here's what you need to know about God's will, okay? God's will, there are two layers to God's will. On the one hand, you have God's general will. And then on the other hand, you have God's specific will. So God's general will is the word of God. If you want to know what God wants for you as a Christian, just read the word of God. That's God's general will for every single Christian. But God doesn't just have a general will for your life. He has a specific will for your life. Some of you may be called to singleness. Some of you may be called to be an accountant. Some of you may be called to be a nurse. See, we all have specific wills, God's specific will for our life. Maybe you're in a season right now where you have to make a decision on something big. God's will might be different for you in that season that if someone was in the same exact season, they would, God, they would go left and you would go right. So you see God's general will, which is found in his word, and then God's specific will, which is found essentially through prayer and spending time with him. But I would argue that the better you are at discerning God's general will, actually reading his word, the better you will be at figuring out his specific will. Because a lot of times I'll sit down with people and they're asking me for God's will in their life. And I'm like, no, dude, you're not supposed to date a non-Christian. That's in the Bible. You don't, you don't need to pray about that. There's no specific uh, calling for you to be the one person to date a non-Christian. It's in the Bible. Don't do it. It's sin. So, so I, I've seen in my own life that the more I spend time on God's general will, like feeding myself with God's word, the easier it is for me to discern God's specific will for my life. So, so here's the question, right? The question is, if wisdom is so important, where can we find wisdom? How can we as Christians put ourselves in a place where we are constantly receiving God's wisdom? And if you're taking notes, there are four places that we can find wisdom. The first place that we find wisdom is in the word of God. Flat out, most foundational place to find wisdom is in the word of God. As a matter of fact, if you aren't doing this first one, forget about the next three I'm about to tell you. If you want to grow in wisdom and you're not in God's word on a daily basis and not just on a weekly basis when Pastor Will preaches on a text, you ain't going to grow in wisdom. Okay, so the first place to find wisdom is in the word of God. The second place, though, to find wisdom is in the people of God which is one of, the Greek, one of the Hebrew words I was making reference to, right? The idea of it's training with accountability, that, that many times we can't grow in wisdom by ourselves. Many times we grow in wisdom by spending time with someone who's been in that season before us, and they're taking time to walk with us and to teach us and to pour into us. That can happen through reading a book that someone's written. That can happen by listening to a podcast, or that can happen by just doing life with people 
And we end up growing in wisdom just because of the people we're around. I don't know if I can break this up into percentages, but I would say that at least 50% of my wisdom, which it ain't a lot, comes from the people who've mentored me and discipled me. So, so one of the places we find God's wisdom is not just the word of God, but it's in the people of God. The third place where we find wisdom, though, is in prayer to God, in prayer. How do we know? Well, James in verse one, chapter 1, verse 5 of his letter, James says about prayer, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So if you don't have wisdom, don't blame God. Because it says in the text that he generously gives it when you ask for it. He's willing to give you wisdom. But we can't not pray for it and then be angry that we're confused on the decision we have to make. That, that's not how it works. I was, I was at a ECS earlier this week talking to a bunch of juniors about their career. And I said, listen, you could, you could ask your guidance counselor about what your calling in life is. You could talk to your parents about it. But calling comes from God. If you ain't praying about it, it doesn't matter who you talk to. It's exactly how wisdom works. If wisdom comes to us through prayer. God promises to give it to you generously if you ask him. And in the fourth and final place where we find wisdom is not just in the word of God. It's not just in the people of God. It's not just in prayer to God, but it's in the person of God. Now, now what do I mean by the person of God? Well, what I mean is, I mean Jesus. When you look, when you zoom out, one of the things that you see when you look at the meta narrative of scripture, that all the, all the times wisdom is brought up in the Old Testament, it's it, it, many times, especially in Proverbs, wisdom is talked about like it's almost a person. Like it is, it's not just a, a principle, it's a person. And what we discover later on in First and Second Corinthians is that the wisdom of God is actually a person and his name is Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, Jesus is not just our example of wisdom, he's our source of wisdom. See, a lot of us just think we should have Jesus as an example. The problem with an example is that if we don't have any resources to get there, it ends up crushing you, not helping you. But Jesus isn't just the example of wisdom. He's our source of wisdom. And we know he's our example because look what it says in Mark chapter 6. In Mark 6 verse 2, here's what it says about Jesus. It says, on the Sabbath, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him. How are such mighty works done by his hand? So Jesus Christ is literally the, the, he's the example of wisdom. He's the embodiment of wisdom. But he's not just the embodiment of wisdom. He is the source of wisdom. Because later on in the very letter that we're going through, Colossians 2, 1 through 3, here's what it says about Jesus being our source. Not just our example, but our source of wisdom. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Then he says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not some of the treasures. All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus Christ, our King. So if you want to grow in wisdom, you have to go to the example and the source of wisdom, which is Jesus Christ. 
And what I love about this text is that Paul is not just praying for wisdom. He says, I pray that you would be filled with wisdom. The Greek word there, filled, it means to be equipped. It means to be prepared. It, the, the, the word picture there in Greek is of a ship that is on, on the dock about to take off for a long voyage. And, and to, to, to fill it, to, to prepare it, to equip it means you get all the supplies that ship will need in order to make the voyage it's about to make. So Paul, as he prays for these people, he's praying that the will of God will permeate every single square inch of their lives. That the will of God, that God's wisdom will permeate every single inch of their lives. Now, that's been, I've been praying this prayer, not just for me, but I've been praying this prayer for you guys in this season. I've been praying it for you because as I've been thinking, as I've been processing, I'm like, this is exactly what our church needs more than ever right now. Here's the thing. And here's why I think it's so important for us in this season more than any other season. Because I would argue that out of all the generations that's ever existed because of the internet, we are hands down the most informed generation that's ever existed. And yet at the same time, we are the least transformed generation that's ever existed. We are the most informed and yet at the same time, the least transformed. So all the extra information that we got has done absolutely nothing to our spiritual walk. Being informed is different from being transformed. Listen, I don't know if you know this, but Google doesn't equal godliness. Just because you can search it externally doesn't mean that concept has searched you internally. That's the issue with our culture. We, we have information and we assume that being informed is the same as being transformed. And so you have people who grow up in church and the information never becomes transformation. They walk away from church because it wasn't ever actually Christianity. It was trivia night. That's the issue. That's the struggle. And that's what we have to navigate. We have to navigate that. I honestly can't think. Because here's the thing. The Bible says that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge in and of itself puffs up. If knowledge puffs up, wisdom lives out. And so you got to ask yourself, is the information I'm gathering puffing up or living out? That, that's the question you have to wrestle with. Do I really need more information or should I just obey the one I already have? I think as we navigate this season, as we, as we are 2021 in light of the aftermath of 2020, I just can't think of a more needed prayer for you and for me for your grandkids, for your children, for your spouse, for your friends. I just can't think of one. And, and, and here's the thing, church. I, I would say that the area where we need the most wisdom, you would think it would be with people out there or problems out there. I would say that in my life, as I look at my life, the last year of my life, the area where I've needed the most wisdom has been with my own sin and, and my own life. It's easy for me to diagnose someone out there. But to deal with my fears and my idols and, 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 and my doubts and my strongholds, that's a whole nother ballgame. See, true wisdom, get this, get this. You would think that true biblical wisdom is having all your unanswered questions answered. I'm going to be wise one day and I'll be wise when I can just get all my questions answered. But I would argue that what keeps us from true wisdom is not unanswered questions, it's unquestioned answers. I'm gonna go ahead and say that again because I know for a fact somebody missed that. <laughs> for many of us, what's keeping us from wisdom 
is not unanswered questions. It's unquestioned answers. Answers that we think are the right answer that is not. I would say that the thing that's keeping you from wisdom in your life, the thing that's keeping me from wisdom is not the things I don't know, but the things I think I do know. Oh, I don't need more grace. I already got God's grace. Give me, give me something else. Give me something new. No, 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 no. It's not the things you don't know that's keeping you from growth. It's the things you think you know. And that's why Dr. Tim Keller, who's been one of my biggest influences, he says that when you preach, before you answer people's questions, you have to question people's answers. Because people have really dumb answers. And whether you know it or not, uh, you have a theology for marriage. You have a theology for parenting. You have a theology for your career. The question is, is it a biblical theology? You have a theology, but is it from the Bible? That's what's going to determine whether you are wise or foolish. And so that's kind of, as I've been processing and wrestling through that, that's been my prayer for both me and for you. That not only would we seek, yeah, unanswered questions, but that more than anything else, we would make sure to question our answers. Super important. You know, earlier this week uh, on Friday, I had an opportunity to grab lunch uh, with a good friend of mine. And uh, him and his wife, they're moving away uh, to another state. They're moving actually right by the ocean. They're building a house right by the ocean in South Carolina. Very, very expensive house, way more money than I have. But anyways, I'm not jealous. So we were sitting there and we were at lunch. Uh, we were at Las Tortugas, which is really great. So I only bring up the restaurants that I have a positive review for. And so we're sitting at uh, uh, Las Tortugas and we're eating, we're having fellowship. He's leaving a couple days later. And I'm asking him about the moving process. And I'm like, so explain to me, like, how long does it take to get a house built? And he said, well, what's interesting is that because of the location of our house, the building is taking longer. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, well, one of the things that I didn't expect going into this process is that the foundation of our house, because of where it's located by the ocean, because there's so much sand, the foundation was way more expensive and took way longer than I thought. And I'm like, okay, as a preacher, I'm like, explain what that means. And he's like, well, here's the thing. When we started the process, they gave us two options. We could have gone with just a normal foundation for a house, or we can go with this way more expensive, uh, way longer taking foundation. And I'm like, so what did they do? He's like, well, just to give you an idea, in order to build this house and to build the proper foundation, they had to build over 50, uh, dig over 50 feet into the ground, and they had to put well over 60, 30-foot wooden beams that were all a few feet from each other. They filled that up with concrete, and then on top of that, they put another 15 to 20 feet of rebar. Then they filled that up with concrete. And I'm like, man, that looks like it took a long time. He's like, yeah. I'm like, it looks like it seems like it took a lot of money. He's like, yeah. I'm like, so, okay, now that the house is being built, tell me why that was worth it. Like, what's the difference between one foundation with the other? He's like, well, let me put it like this. When I was talking to the construction guy, here's what he said. He said that if we went with the first option, any strong wind would sway our house. If we would have gone with the cheaper option, any strong wind would have swayed our house. And I'm like, well, what, what about now? with this option. He's like, well, this option? He's like, according to him, we can, ha we can handle a category five hurricane. That's the difference. Now, why do I bring up that illustration? Well, because according to Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that the wise man is the one who builds his house on the rock. The wise man, that's the word there, wise. The person who's wise builds their house on rock, on concrete, on the solid ground. 
The foolish man builds his house on sand. But, but here's the thing, guys. Wisdom, it, it, God will give you wisdom if you're in a bind and you need it. I, I believe that. But the type of wisdom that gets you through a Category 5 hurricane has to be prepped before you get in the hurricane. A lot of us try to make the foundation when the storms come. Oh, hey, look at the clouds. Ooh, get, get the concrete. And, and what I love about that text, and I've said this before, and I will say it again. The houses, Jesus goes out of his way to say the houses look exactly the same. They are the same house, just different foundation. In other words, when the sun is shining and the rainbows are out, the houses look exactly the same. He says, you know what your house is built on when the winds blow and when the storms come and when the Category 5 hurricanes show up. That's when you figure out what your house is actually built on. That is not the time to go get the concrete and start pouring it out. That's what true wisdom does. I can tell you, church, after the past five months that I've gone through in my life, I can tell you as a testimony of this, after those five months, we've been through category eight hurricane. I don't even know if that's a category, but that's what my family's been through. And my house is beat up. The windows are broken in. The door got ripped off. The roof looks rough. But on Christ, a solid rock I stand. My house ain't moving. It don't look that good. But it ain't budging because of the foundation. That's what true wisdom is. So the first thing he prays for is vertical wisdom. The second thing that Paul prays for them is he prays for their horizontal walk. He prays for their horizontal walk. Look what it says. I'm going to reread verse 9 and then read through verse 10. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10, so as to walk, everyone say walk, in a manner worthy, everybody say worthy, of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So the second thing Paul prays for is not just their vertical wisdom, but their horizontal walk. Now, the word walk there in the Greek, it literally means your habitual lifestyle, your, your way of life, your pattern of life. So it's not like a brief walk that you do once, but it's what is your continual lifestyle, your continual pattern of life. That's what the word there walk means. The word there worthy, uh, it, it's, it's like very fascinating and very convicting at the same time. When he says that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, the word worthy means to have something that's worth as much as something else. To, to have something of comparable value. So, so get this. Paul says that when we walk, we should walk so that our lives are of comparable value to the Lord. Think about how crazy that is. That is the lifestyle that you and I should be living on a consistent basis. Comparable value, worth just as much as the Lord. And then he uses the word pleasing. And the word there, pleasing, says that we are to be fully pleasing to him. The word there, pleasing, means to find favor in the eyes of someone, to be found acceptable. So, so those are the words that I feel help us understand what Paul is praying for here. He's saying that as I pray, I'm not just praying for your wisdom, your head. I'm praying for your walk, your hands. And Paul says that if all you have is content, if the content of your head doesn't impact the conduct of your hands, 
again, it's trivia night. It's not Christianity. Your wisdom has to impact your walk. Your learning has to impact your living. Your beliefs have to impact your behavior. Listen, there's a big difference between being informed and being transformed. Many of you may know people like this, and this may be you. You love information. Woo, information is great. And if you remember when we talked about idolatry, depending on who you are, you're motivated by one of three things. Some people like me are motivated by significance, how you look, what people think, right? Some people are motivated by security, control, plan, safety. And then some people are motivated by satisfaction, which is comfort and rest and pleasure. So, so some people like me, I tend to look for and gather information so I can share it with other people, so I can look smart. Like, oh, man, if I, if I drop this on somebody, they're going to be blown away by how smart I am. That's significance, people. Security people, they're going to information, not necessarily to impress anybody, but because they think the more they know, the safer they'll be. So if I just spent hours watching YouTube videos, if I just spent hours reading articles and conspiracy theories instead of my Bible, I'll be safe. Because I know. I know. And since I know, I'll be safer. And then the people who are satisfaction, you just enjoy knowledge. You just enjoy learning just for the sake of learning. But what we see is that Paul says our learning should not be motivated by significance. It shouldn't be motivated by satisfaction. It shouldn't be motivated by security. Our learning should be motivated by sanctification. I should learn for the purpose of living it out, for the purpose of becoming more like Jesus. He's not content with just information gathering. Like I said, knowledge puffs up, but wisdom lives out. That's what Paul is saying here. And you've met those people who they've been, they know so much about the Greek and the Hebrew and the, and the historical context for Revelation. And when Jesus is going to back, the very minute Jesus is going to back, they, they know that. They already talked to him. They, they, they're the welcoming committee. They know exactly what moment and, and, and the tribulation. They, they have it all figured out. But they haven't produced fruit since 96. Paul says that we need to walk. Our wisdom should impact our walk. But it's not just any walk. He says our walk must be worthy of the Lord, must be comparable in value to the Lord. Here's what that means. Let me unpack that for you. One commentator put it this way. He said that when Paul mentions that we are to live and walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, what he means is we should every day, we should live our lives in light of who God is and what God has done. That when I get up, the reason why I have to spend time in the word is because the word is the only thing that's going to remind me of what my real purpose for life is, which is to walk wisely. And to walk wisely means, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord means to live my life in light of who God is and what God has done. So here's some diagnostic questions I want you to think through. As you look at your life, how much of your life is being given over to the things that God considers worthy or weighty? Like if you had a pie chart of your life, what slice of that pie chart is actually given over to the things that God considers worthy and weighty? Evangelism, discipleship, community, serving, generosity. How much of your life is actually being spent on that? That will tell you on the worthy scale how weighty and worthy your lifestyle actually is. 
Here's the other question you can ask. If, if one of the things that we're supposed to do is please God fully, when you do what you do, I'm not sure if you're a homemaker. I don't know if you're a doctor. I don't know if you're a nurse. I don't know if you're a fireman. I don't know if you're in ministry. But when you do what you do, who are you doing it for? Who, who are you pleasing? Who, who is your audience? Who is the person that you need a, 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 a approval from? Who is the person you need a pat on the back from? Who, who is the person that you need to see you? Is it your kids? Is it your spouse? Is it your, your church friends? Is it your parents? Is it someone who died a long time ago who you never got the acceptance from and so you're desperately trying to live up to someone's standard that doesn't exist anymore? Who are you pleasing? Because who you're pleasing will tell you who you're fearing, who you're worshiping, and who you actually are looking for approval from. In, in, in Proverbs 9, it says that, it, it, that the, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I only grow wise when my fear, my reverence, my awe is of God. That's the only person I'm seeking to please. But if you're seeking to please your social media following, then there might be a disconnect with how much your walk is impacted by your wisdom. And that's what we need to wrestle with. You know, one of the things I had to wrestle with during this season of, of these last few months is some of you may know this, some of you may not, but um, I am a third. So my grandfather was, his na was named Wilfredo, my dad's named Wilfredo, and I'm the third. And one of the things that I had to wrestle with over the past five months is my grandfather passed away about five, six months ago. And then all of a sudden, my dad's in critical condition on life support. And I had to face the reality that my dad might be gone. And for some reason, realizing that we were going to go from three wills to one will in a matter of five months was like really messing with me in my prayer life. And one of the things I started praying about was I want to make sure that I honor the name Will, the Wilfredo, the name that I might be the only one who's carrying this name after this. And I, that was my prayer for a really long time. And then God, out of nowhere, decided to convict me and he hit me right between the eyes. He was like, whoa, 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 whoa. The only name that's worthy of you living for ain't Wilfredo, bro. It's the name of Jesus Christ. That's the only name that you should walk in a, in a manner worthy of. I, I, your grandpa and your dad are great people, but that ain't it. That's not Christianity. That's idolatry. It's my name that you are to live up to. It is my name that you are to live worthy of. Here's the other thing that God taught me in that season. As I was praying for my dad, I found myself one night praying specifically for his breath because it was his lungs that were being affected and, and, and his, his, his oxygen level will go up and his oxygen level will go down. And I found myself almost every night praying for my dad's next breath. I'm like, Lord, I just pray that you would give my dad another breath, that you would give him enough breaths to make it through the night. And as I was praying, the Lord convicted me again and said, hold up, man. You should be praying for your next breath just as much as you're praying for your dad's next breath. Just because he's on life support doesn't mean that you have any more life than he does. I could take you out tonight, dude. See, wisdom is thanking God for the next breath that you don't deserve. So whatever it is that you think you deserve in this season that God hasn't given you, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a job, success, whatever it is, the fact that you're breathing is enough. That's when true wisdom starts kicking in, when you realize I, I don't deserve anything, and yet in Christ I've gotten everything. So what happens is you get to a place where your wisdom has to impact your walk. Your learning has to impact your living. But here's the thing. There are times when God uses 
do, does it the opposite way. Instead of your learning impacting your living, sometimes your living impacts your learning. Your, your walk impacts your wisdom. I would say at least half the time, that's how God works. That sometimes the curriculum that God is having you learn from is not a book or a Bible verse or a, or a teacher. It's your own life. Your life is the curriculum. That's the lesson that God is teaching you. One of the people on our staff, uh, Roger Green, uh, we were talking on, uh, on Tuesday. We had this prayer group that we were in. And he said that one of the things that God is teaching him in 2021 is that he wants to obey the will of God regardless if it makes sense to him or not. And he says he was, the reason why he was convicted of that is because he was reading in Deuteronomy. And at the beginning of Deuteronomy 2, you find Moses praying to God and he's asking God for direction. He's asking God for his will. God, what do you want me to do? And God tells his brother, I want you to take the million plus people you're leading and go back into the wilderness you just came from. What happens when what God says doesn't agree with what you want? Some of you know what God's will is. You just don't want it. You don't want to go back into the wilderness. That doesn't make sense to you. And so part of what going, I would never have chosen the five months I just went through. And yet that's the wilderness God decided to send me in. And so I'm a different person now, but it's because of the fact that God led me there. I would never have chosen to have my grandparents die within a few months. Or I never would have chosen that. I promise you that. But God chose that. That's the curriculum he had for me. I told our staff, it's almost like I went off to suffering seminary for a few months. I went on a suffering sabbatical and came back. Because that's where God decided to lead. But what happens where, when God's will doesn't match up with your will? What do you do? What do you do when you know exactly what he's saying, but you just don't care? Because I'm not doing it. I'm not going over there. Here's the thing. I would say, one, one of my favorite professors, uh, never, never had him as a professor myself, but he's a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. His name is Steve Brown. Dr. Steve Brown, he has a radio show. He's written books. Super gospel-centered guy. He says that in his classes, whenever a young 20-something seminary student decides to be a smart aleck and asks a really hard theological question, not because he really cares for the answer, because he wants to look smart. He says, this, he says, this is my one response to every seminary student who tries to do it. In front of the whole class, he says, I'm not going to answer your question. It's like, well, why? He's like, I need you to come back in 10 years. And if you're still asking the same question, I'll answer it in 10 years. Well, what do you mean? He's like, you haven't lived enough, sinned enough, or suffered enough to answer that, ask that question. Once you've lived enough, sinned enough and suffered enough, then you can come back and answer that question. Listen, there was questions that 2019 Will was asking that 2021 Will ain't asking anymore. Because they don't matter. Because what God taught me in that season realized there's things that really don't matter. And the things that I thought were not that important are the most important things. And so I, here's why older Christians, we have to have grace for younger Christians. Because you might be sitting on your high, ho on your high wisdom horse thinking you're, you're wiser than everybody. But what you don't realize is how much of your wisdom has come from suffering. And how much of your wisdom has come from the fact that you just live long enough to see that life isn't what you think it is. Have grace for those people. Just like I would have to have grace for 2019, Will, because he, he hadn't gone through 2020 yet. You have to have grace for people who are younger than you in the faith. Because there are certain lessons that can only be learned through suffering, through pain, through experience. They have to live enough, sin enough, and suffer enough. So that's the prayer. He prays for their wisdom. He prays for their walk. And I would say 
going into 2021, I can't think of a better prayer for us to be praying for ourselves and for the people we love than the prayer that you find here in Colossians chapter one. Now, after we look at godly prayer, I want to conclude this morning by looking at gospel power, at a gospel power. Now, now here's what I mean by a gospel power. Hopefully by now, we all have better clarity on what Paul is praying for these believers. We all hopefully have a better idea of what wisdom means and what walking in a manner worthy of the Lord means. But I don't know about you. If you're anything like me, the more I understood what Paul was praying for, there was almost like two things happening inside me simultaneously. On the one hand, I found myself very compelled to live the life that, that Paul was praying. Like I wanted to be the person that Paul was praying for. Right? So on the one hand, I felt very compelled, but yet at the very same time, I felt very crushed by the expectations that he was setting. Because I was like, there's no way I can do this for a day, let alone a week, let alone a month, let alone a year, let alone a decade, let alone a lifetime. So I had two simultaneous things going on. I felt compelled to want to live that way, but at the very same time, I felt crushed under the yoke of what seemed like an impossible thing to carry. So, so, so the question is, what, 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 what can we do? How can we possibly ever hope to live the life that Paul is praying for us to live? Well, here's the good news. If you're anything like me and you feel that conviction and you feel that crushing, that millstone taking you down to the bottom of the ocean, if that's you, here's the encouraging thing. The encouraging thing is that by the grace of God, this passage doesn't end in verse 10. Because if it ended at verse 10, it would be up to us. But what we see is that it doesn't end in verse 10. And look what it says in verses 11 through 14. We see that this godly prayer is accompanied by and empowered by a gospel power. Look at verse 11. It says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, so, so here's the thing. What we discover is that the only way we are ever going to exhibit the godly prayer that Paul's praying is if we embrace the godly power that Paul's providing. It's the only way it works. The only power that is powerful enough to enable you and empower you to live verses 9 and 10 is gospel power. It's the only power that can do it. And here's what I love about the word power. It says, strengthening you in all power. It's in the continuous tense. It's in the present tense. So what it means is that the gospel doesn't just empower you one time, but it continually empowers you again and again. That's what we talked about last week. It's not just the gospel then power. It's the gospel now power. The gospel has the continuous power to enable you to live this out continually. And what I love about what Paul says, I'm going to reread it again in case you missed it. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So what does that mean? It means that God's power in your life right now, his gospel power is not in proportion to your need. It's in proportion to his might. God's power is not in proportion to your limited need. It is in proportion to his, his, his unlimited might. In other words, whatever you need, God can meet you there and he has way more left over than what you could ever possibly need from him. That's what we see in the gospel church. That the only way we're ever going to live out the prayer is if we rely on the power. Only the gospel has the power to do 
what this passage calls us to do. Only the gospel. And matter of fact, the word power in Greek, it means the ability to do something, the capability to perform an act. In other words, only God is powerful enough for you to do what you're being called to do in this passage. Only God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can do that in you. Only gospel power can do it. But what's interesting to me, right, what's fascinating to me is so often, I don't know about you, when I think of God's power, I tend to think of Old Testament. I tend to think of these, these, these very external public displays of power. I tend to think of plagues, and I tend to think of the Red Sea, and I tend to think of, you know, God meeting Moses in the mountaintop, and there's, there's thunder and there's lightning. But what we discover is I don't, that's only part of God's power, that God's power is displayed not just in the external public events, but in the internal, private, personal events of your life. God's power is just as present and just as manifested in you and your personal spiritual growth as it was with Moses on the mountain. We have to change our definition, or at the very least, add to our definition of what God's power is. Here's why. Because in the New Testament, we are told that God's power is actually specifically found in one place. We don't have to guess. The the New Testament in Romans chapter 1, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the very power of God unto salvation. So in other words, the the gospel isn't the, the cord that you connect to the source, the outlet. No, no, the outlet is the gospel. The gospel is the very power of God. So if over the last 18 months under my ministry, God has changed you in any way, it's not because of me. It's because the gospel is the very power of God. And the longer you sit under the gospel, the more you are transformed into the image of God's son. Can I get an amen, church? Is it too early in the year to ask for that? Am I preaching to myself? That's what we see. That true gospel power, according to the New Testament, is not found by a sea, is not found on a mountaintop. It is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So so the question you may be asking is this. You may be sitting here and you're asking, hold on, how do I know? Okay, I believe that God is powerful enough for salvation, but how do I know that God is powerful enough for sanctification? to empower me on a daily basis in my walk with Jesus. Well, I'm glad you ask, because what Paul does here in the passage is he tells us that God is powerful and then proceeds to show us four ways in which God's power has been manifested in the gospel, okay? Four ways. The the first way, according to Paul, is he says that God has qualified us. It says it in the text. I'm not making it up. It says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the sons of light. He says that one of the things that proves the power of God, if you need God's resume, if any of you are doubting that God is able to do what I'm saying he could do, here's the resume, okay? Point number one on the resume, God is powerful enough because God has qualified you in the gospel. The word there, qualified, it means to meet a standard. It literally means to make someone worthy. Remember the word we were talking about earlier? It means to to meet a standard and to make someone worthy. Jesus qualifies us and makes us worthy. I don't know how you guys think about qualifying for something, but I know that some of us, we qualify for loans. 
right? We got to meet a certain criteria in order to qualify. The other day, I was on the phone with Comcast, Xfinity, because I was moving from AT&T to Xfinity because AT&T is terrible. And so I was on the phone with this woman and she was like, hey, um, I, there's a fee that you might have to pay. And I'm like, oh no. And she's like, but wait, I'm going to run your social security. And if, 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 if you qualify, you won't have to pay it. That's what qualify means in our eyes, right? We, we have to meet a certain criteria. And if we meet it, then we qualify. But in the gospel, our qualifications come not from what we do for Jesus, but from what Jesus has done for us. He has qualified us, church. He has made us worthy. So the reason why we can live a life and live in a manner worthy of the Lord, we can do that progressively because Jesus has made us worthy positionally. Come on. I can, I can now, I can go and this verse that was, used, was crushing me before doesn't crush me anymore because I am worthy positionally before I am called to be worthy progressively. It's true of me legally. My status has changed. I am worthy because of what he's done, not because of what I do. So, so the first thing he does is he qualifies us. The, the second thing he does, according to the passage, is he delivers us. He, he delivers us. The word there, deliver, it means to be rescued with a strong arm to be rescued by a strong arm. He says he delivers us from the domain of darkness. In Greek, the word there, domain, it means rule. It means authority. It means power. So it means that prior to coming to Jesus, we were under the power, the control of Satan. That's why Jesus tells the Pharisees that your father is Satan. We were under the domain and power and rule and authority of Satan. Jesus shows up and he delivers us. He kicks down the jail cell door and he takes us to his kingdom. He, he transfers us. In the, New, in the Old Testament, God describes it as, I delivered you on eagle's wings when he talks to the Israelites. What I love about that is that what he's literally saying is you did absolutely nothing. You got on the, on the eagle and I was the one that flew. That's the gospel. But he's not only qualified us, he not only delivered us, but according to the passage, he also redeems us. It says redemption. The word there, redemption, it means to pay a ransom. It's someone who has a ransom on their head and you pay the ransom. It's a slave who is in the marketplace and you buy the slave back. That's what it means to redeem. But here's the question. If the word there means ransom to pay a price, what was the price that God had to pay in order for us to be redeemed? Well, according to the New Testament, the price that God had had to pay was the blood of his son Jesus. Then it says in the passage that it's, he, took, he moved us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the son he loves. God paid for you with the blood of the son that he loves. Listen, church, the reason why we claim the name of Jesus in spiritual warfare, it's not because it's magical. It's not because it's mystical. The reason why we claim the name of Jesus in spiritual warfare is because when the enemy shows up and tries to accuse you, when the enemy shows up and tries to enslave you, you pull out the receipt and you say, bro, proof of purchase. He already paid for me. Come on. I plead the name of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, because I'm paid for, dude. I've been bought back. I don't belong to you anymore. And in the last way you see gospel power is that we are forgiven. He ends the text by saying that we are forgiven. And what I love about that idea of being forgiven is that in the Greek, the word there forgiven means to send something away. It literally means to take something and to hurl it away from you. 
It means to cancel a debt. When you place your faith in Jesus, God takes your sin and he sends it away. He, he hurls it away. That's what he does. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, one of the things that we discover is that when the priest would go to the temple, we all talk about the sacrificial lamb. There was a lamb that died for the sins of the people, but there was also a scapegoat. There was a goat that the priest would lay hands on and would represent the sins of the people being taken away. That's the picture of forgiveness. Our sins being taken away into the wilderness. God never sees them again. He takes them, he hurls them. It's canceled. The debt is paid. But how many of us right now are trying to requalify for a status that we've already been given? How many of us are trying to pay a debt that's already been covered? And you're sitting here thinking, hey, Pastor Will, I know God's forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. Well, what that means is that what you think of you is more important than what God thinks of you. God, if you were on the throne of my heart, your opinion would matter more. But since I'm on the throne of my heart and I can't forgive myself, it doesn't really matter what you say. Oh, I can't forgive that person, God. I can't. You might have hurled those sins away. You might have cast his sins away. You might have canceled their debt, but I can't. I just can't. That is someone who hasn't experienced gospel power. So what we discover, church, and what I love about this is that what, what commentators say is that what the apostle Paul is doing here by using those four Greek verbs is he's actually hearkening back to the Exodus when God delivered the Israelites from Egypt. But what's beautiful is that in the gospel, it says that we are given an inheritance. Our inheritance is not the land of Canaan. Our inheritance is heaven. Our inheritance is the good news concerning Jesus. We now get to participate with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have a greater Exodus. We have a greater redemption. We have a greater rescue. We have a greater inheritance and his name is Jesus Christ. And so since we are now in him, union with Christ again, since we are now in him, when God sees us, we are worthy. When God sees us, we are loved. When God sees us, we are pleased because the only person that ever pleased him was Jesus. In his baptism, the father sees him and says, this is with whom, my son with whom I am well pleased. Now we are in him and so God, we are worthy, we are loved and God is pleased. Not because of what we do, but because of what he did for us. The more we embrace the gospel power, the more we will exhibit the godly prayer. Amen? Let's go ahead and bow our heads, close our eyes. Listen, maybe you're sitting here today and you've never actually placed your faith in Jesus. Maybe you're new to this whole Christianity thing. Or maybe you grew up in church, but instead of wisdom, you just have a whole bunch of Bible knowledge that never really changed your heart. You know a lot about the Old Testament. You know a lot about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. You know about Jesus. You don't actually know who Jesus is. Listen, if you're here under the sound of my voice, whether you're here in the room or whether you're online, maybe today is the day that God's saying, I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. I want you to confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that my son is Lord. I want you to be transferred from the kingdom in the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the son I love. I love you now if, because I loved him then. Maybe today is your day. So if you're here and you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want you to pray with me. You could pray silently in your seat, but just pray with me. Pray this way. Dear Lord, I come before you today and I thank you that even though the bad news is bad, the good news is greater. 
And I thank you that because I right now am confessing my sin, confessing my brokenness, confessing my waywardness, I can come to you, my Savior, the greater Moses, who brought a greater exodus, who now gives me a greater inheritance. I want to place my faith in you today, right now. Not in my past, not in my knowledge, not in my church attendance, not in my intellectualism. I want to place my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. I confess my sin. I confess him as Lord. And I want him to now lead me and guide me from here on out. I give my life to you now. In Jesus' name. And maybe you're sitting here and you already know Jesus. You're processing this from a completely different angle. I mean, pray for you as your pastor. Father God, I want to pray for our church. I pray for the people here who, like I said earlier, a lot of times for us, it's not the things that we don't know that hinder us and keep us from being wise. It's the things that we think we know. God, I pray that you would help us not just to seek uh, to answer uh, our questions, but that we would seek to question our answers and that we would become a church that's wise because we need wisdom right now. We need wisdom in our own lives. We need wisdom in our marriages. We need wisdom in our singleness. We need wisdom in our careers. We need wisdom in the political world that we live in. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. And that only comes from your word, from your people, from prayer, and from Christ. Help us to be wise people, we pray. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said...